Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us back on Banter today is Scott Winship, who's a senior fellow and the director of a new center here at AEI, the Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility, which is a part of AEI's new American Dream initiative. He most recently served as the executive director of the JEC, where he worked on the social capital project with Mike Lee and also has studied economic opportunity and social mobility at the Manhattan Institute, Brookings and Pew. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Scott. Uh, Thanks, Phoebe. Always a pleasure. And you forgot to mention he has a PhD from Harvard. Well, you can't tell me that they have to be both shorter and that I have to include everything. You're supposed to let me bring that (laughs) myself. Yeah, you know, they always uh... get there. No, Scott is a very learned and distinguished scholar here at AI. And I'll tell you an interesting story, Phoebe and Scott. Mm -hmm. You're here and welcome. We're glad you're here. When I first came to Washington to be the poverty scholar under Arthur Brooks, and this was now almost 10 years ago, I called up my best friend in the world of poverty, fighting, social policy, Washington world, who was a scholar at Brookings and the former staff director of the Ways and Means Subcommittee on all these issues, and one of the authors of the welfare reform bill, Ron Haskins, who is a, I learned is a friend of Scott's as well. And we had a little coffee over at a Starbucks over on 18th or 19th somewhere. And he said, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Hire Scott Winship. He's the best. <laughs> and it took me a while, but we got him here. Yeah. And so it was a really nice tribute to Scott's work back then. And then he's just built on it since he's come to AI. So, Scott, um, how long has it been now? At AEI? It's been uh, two and a half years, I guess. I think Scott was actually our first banter episode when we were co-hosts. Yeah, well, that's so, the start of another great thing. Then, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Now, Scott, so now you've been here two and a half years and we've decided to give you a, your, your center a new name and a, and a new focus. What's that all about? Yeah, well, so, I, you know, I'm tempted to say that, you know, we had poverty studies at AEI and the, the guy before me, you know, solved <laughs> poverty. So, uh uh, guy named That's Robert, not Robert a good Dorr. thing to say. That's <laughs> not a good thing to say. That is, that is, there's some truth to it, but don't say that. <laughs> no, no. So I, I think when I came to AEI, I was very interested in, in starting a center as a way to highlight work within AEI, outside of AEI, on upward mobility and opportunity. I, I sort of had this belief that I think you share too, which is that you know we've we've the nation has made a lot of progress in terms of poverty reduction. Um, that's not to say that our job is done or that we should stop pushing for, for more, for, for less poverty. But at the same time, we've had this this 50-year decline in poverty. We've had these stubborn upward mobility rates that haven't gone anywhere. And maybe they've they've actually gone down a little bit. So you know, if you're if you're born into a disadvantaged family, and there's, there's still pretty high chances you end up in a disadvantaged family. If the same kinds of policies that were effective at reducing poverty or that we've used to reduce poverty were also the same policies that would increase upward mobility, we should have seen a lot more progress on those lines. So it suggests we need to just start thinking more freshly about upward mobility and what it would take to... Right. So the idea is that we've we've done a lot through a combination of work expectations and work requirements and work supports and transfer payments, mm-hmm. uh, even without work, but there's too too much of that still, but yep. well, we won't have to get into that, to r- reduce the material hardship yep. of people that were, and so that the, the face of poverty and the image of poverty and the actual resources available to households is much different than it was 25 years ago because of all this progress. But people's ability to gain the skills they need or to 
own a home or to get safely into the middle class, that isn't as strong as we'd like it to be. And that's what you want to focus on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the the, the way that folks try to focus on it these days or don't, you know, is, is sort of flawed in, in a couple of ways. I think, you know, on the left, there is this idea that like, you know, the best way to reduce poverty is to give people cash. And that's also the best way to in- increase upward mobility. Um, there's not nearly enough attention to concern about, well, you know, if you just give people cash without any strings attached, that can actually have incentives or disincentives mm-hmm. that hurt upward mobility and, and could be counterproductive in that regard. The other thing I think both sides are, are are doing wrong, there's not enough of a focus on social capital. I think the populists are, are sort of winning the day in terms of a negative message that the economy is failing everybody. And, and I just think that's not true. I think, you know, the economy is actually continues to be strong. We don't have enough people who are prepared when they reach adulthood to benefit from it. But where, where we really are seeing sort of a long-term catastrophe is, is around the area of social capital and things like the health of the family and the health of communities and trust in our institutions and things like that. That's also related to opportunity and mobility as well. So we want to focus on that too. Yeah, you wrote a really great piece of the National Review last week, I think, or within fairly recently on that very issue. And it was the first time I really saw that where you said people can be materially above poverty, but can be lonely, can be addicted to drugs, can be outside of civil society, can not be working enough, and can have no really significant positive family relations. And that's a a kind of poverty, too, that in some ways is almost worse. Yeah. Uh, And and we do have a problem there. Is that your point? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the trends, you know, I, I think the, the sort of trends around family structure and kids growing up with single parents and divorce are kind of the ones that people tend to know about as being bad over a very long period of time. But they really, you know, fit into a whole slew of other things around, you know, religious participation, volunteer or volunteerism actually is, is a little bit of a different story. But trust in institutions, you know, we spend less time doing things with our neighbors, with our coworkers outside of work. So just across a huge array of issues, our social lives have gotten and and I do think, you know, both social poverty and social inequality, you know, aren't things that are getting enough attention. We have a great tradition at AEI of folks like Charles Murray, Nick Eberstadt. You can go back to the 1970s. There was a great project back then. Very strong legacy of looking into these things at AEI. And so we kind of want to revive that a little bit, too. So, Phoebe, the, when I ran it, it was called the Poverty Studies Program, or at least that's mm-hmm. what I called it. I don't know if we ever called it that officially, but it that's did, what I, I think. Yeah. Okay, good. And then it was solved. <laughs> yeah, well, I moved I, on. I solved a little <laughs> bit strong. And then, but now it's, it's the AI Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility. Yeah, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. I like it. And you're happy, and you brought in a new guy to help you with it? We yeah. did, yeah. We were thrilled. We we brought home Kevin Corinth, who was here. In fact, you probably hired Kevin. As- I did not. I did not. I, that was not me. Okay. I, I loved, he was my colleague. We yep. were hired at the mm-hmm. same time. Ah, got it. Okay. The, yep. They brought us both in at the same time. So Kevin was here mostly doing homelessness research, and he's going to continue to do some of that. As, but in the interim, he, he worked in the Council of Economic Advisors. He ran Senator Lee's office on the Joint Economic Committee, running the Social Capital Project there. He's done some you know incredibly important work that we might, might get into. With, with Bruce Meyer, uh, is also affiliated with us, related to the child tax credit expansion. So, so we brought him back, and he's going to be the deputy director of the center. And, and now we're kind of putting our heads together and figuring out what new projects to pursue. And yeah, and let's just, let's just look at that for a second. Kevin came, he was a newly minted PhD from the University of Chicago Economics Department. He looked at the world that was available to him. He could have gone and had a drudgy, unhappy life trying to become tenured professor in some college, some university in America, and instead he came here because Kevin Astin and Arthur Brooks gave him an opportunity to 
to do the work he really wanted to do, which was about homelessness. And he did that for three or four years. And then he got brought over to the Council of Economic Advisors. And I think he worked basically you know, 20 hours a day for four years yeah. helping the Trump administration. Again, a great experience, you know, Phoebe. I mean, this is yeah. a, somebody who he did the AI thing, then went out and did something in, in, in the federal government at a very high level. He was in on all the big conversations and the debates and the tensions and and worked with Rich Burkhauser, who yep. was on the on the council. Yep. Kevin was the chair. And then that ends and he goes over to Congress and spends two years running the Joint Economic Committee. And so I think he's just a much better scholar and participant in the public debate having that very real experience. He's still a Ph.D. economist from the University of Chicago. He still cares about our issues, he still writes well. The interesting thing that Scott mentioned, and I just, I'm getting, going off a little bit on this because I'm so pleased with Kevin, is he also wrote, really significant, co-wrote with Bruce Meyer, the distinguished professor at the University of Chicago, on the effect of a cash benefit being increased on work that that no one wanted to acknowledge until they basically proved it. And, And by the way, on that, can I just ask you a question about that? Sure, yeah. Did you notice the jobs report on Friday that there was a big increase, you know, Work people are going back to work, yeah, and especially among women. And I wonder whether you think that there's a little effect of the withdrawing of the child tax credit on getting more people into the labor force. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I haven't looked into that, Bruce, and I. I think Kevin's yeah Kevin's on this paper too. They have a paper where they they try to look at trends during 2020 and for for people who were were not eligible for the expanded CTC on a month by month basis. And they actually find some evidence that that it did depress work during 2021. In which case, getting rid of it would have would have increased work. I I, I don't I, I I haven't seen enough research to to judge myself. I think you know the the sorts of really disastrous effects on work that I think were concerned about, I think would take a few years to to turn up. But it's certainly the case that if we had continued, you know, if the if the, if the CTC expansion had become permanent at the end of 2021, like 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 the Democrats wanted and build back better, I don't, I don't think we'd see as strong the jobs reports. No question have. about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm telling you, of course, I'm a little obsessed about this. But, you know, when I saw that report and then very prominently was said women especially yeah. have yeah. are now back to pre-COVID levels. Yep. I just believe completely that the, the withdrawal of that you know, un, un, unconditioned cash benefit into households leads people saying, well, I guess I need to go get a job. And some people don't think that's such a good thing. I happen to think it is. It's better yep. for people to be engaged in employment. So anyway, Kevin's coming back. You're here. You've got a lot to do. I've got one more question for him for you, but then you need to pipe yeah. in here. Yep. You 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 have joined the, the discussion about the flailing prospects of men and mm. boys and <laughs> What's your? What, you have a little different take than what some of other people are saying, or is it the same take? Yeah, I think I have a similar take to 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 that of a lot of conservatives. So you know, this conversation has kind of been kicked off by my friend Richard Reeves, your friend Richard Reeves' book of Boys and Men that came out last fall, which is getting a lot of attention. You know, Richard is a very thoughtful guy. He's he's harder to peg on some of these questions than a lot of people are. I do think that I agree with with sort of Brad Wilcox, our colleague here, and some others. His explanations. Give short shrift, I think, to to the decline in two parent households. One way that having two parents could make a difference, especially for boys, is having a same sex role model in the house. So, to the extent that boys have been falling behind girls at the same time that fatherlessness has become a bigger and bigger deal, you know that that tracks 
pretty well with the idea that the boys have been have been hurt by this. So, you know, I think I think some of his policies, ideas I'd, I'd, I'd sort of disagree with as well. But I think it's really important he's got it on the table because there there really are these 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 pretty profound ways that that boys and men are falling behind. The, the, the work question is, is is another one there. I mean, men's labor force participation has been falling for for decades now, and we we haven't had anything like a welfare reform from the 1990s that that visibly boosted single mothers' work rates. Some some kind of policy along those lines. You know, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to to help men in the same way. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that we had a policy that was very helpful to mothers and women young women, struggling young women and mothers, but we haven't had a similar type policy for men coming from the same sorts of households who, and the other thing you kind of said there, who, who because of the fact that they both come from single parent households are struggling with the problems that are associated with that, but those problems are worse for boys than they are for, for girls and young women. And why is that? Because the young, the young woman sees a role model who looks like her and acts like her, sort of like her as a woman, yep. and the boy doesn't. Yep. And that is just a much, in my opinion, more likely to lead to less better, less good outcomes. Yep. And Richard does give that a little short shift, even though it's staring him in the face, and he doesn't, doesn't step up to it, but you hold him accountable. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best. We talked, talked recently. Good. I know in that report as well, you kind of take up what's become this populist claim on on both the left and the right that it's now almost impossible to support a family on just one income. Can you tell us a little bit about how you push back on that in the report as well? Yeah. That, so, yeah, that, that is part of Richard's story that I think I, I disagreed with a bit was, you know, that that men men have fallen behind economically relative to women. Absolutely. Um, but in, in in absolute terms, they're they're really doing about as well as they've ever done. And, and that comes after a period where men's pay really was declining in the 1970s with all the inflation was a bad decade. The 80s weren't great, but really since the recovery from the early 90s recession, men's men's pay has increased pretty strongly. And this is during a period, you know, that we talk about the China shock. This is when the opioids crisis happened. So so there's not there's a mismatch there between when's when men's pay has been going up and some of these things that people are attributing to mm-hmm. the problems of men. So in this report, I, I wanted to take on a couple different arguments. One is that it's become too hard to raise a family on one income, which you hear a lot. You know, folks like Blake Masters, I think it was a big theme mm-hmm. of his campaign in Arizona during during the Senate campaign. And and I essentially say like, okay, well let's 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 set a threshold for marriageability or in that regard. Like what what would mm-hmm. it take to be able to raise a family on one income? And so I look at in the late 1970s how much sole breadwinning fathers actually made, and I say, okay, let's let's draw. That's that's sort of the threshold that you need to hit. Mm-hmm. Are fewer guys able to hit that threshold than than back then? The answer is no. About the same, you know, depending on how you set the threshold, you know, in, in some cases, more men today are able to to do that. And so that means that if that it hasn't become harder to raise a family on one income, I think what's happened is that. You know, our, our wants have increased. People don't want to sort of live at a late mm-hmm. 1970s living standard. And and they would rather have two workers and live at a, you know, 2023 20, living standard. And, and then the other argument I make is that you can't blame the increase in single parenthood that has taken place on men's falling pay either. There is this argument that a lot of social conservatives and our friends have made mm-hmm. uh, that say, well, you know, if, if not for, you know, trade with China, the gutting of manufacturing jobs, men would be doing better economically. And then we'd have the marriage rates we used to have. Turns out that doesn't really look look like it holds up either. I mean, so we have to look to these so explanations that we kind of were talking about at the beginning that 
that may have some economic causes, but but maybe just completely separate from from economics. So I hope you're getting a little sense, listeners and Phoebe, of Scott's sort of willingness to challenge everybody and anybody on various issues. And I was going to ask you about your sort of persona, the, your your modus operandi as a policy wonk here in this town. I think it's fair to say that when in your earlier days, when I first was introduced to you, you had a reputation of being kind of a kind of a scrapper, you know, and. <laughs> And, and I think you still do. I think being a scrapper is a good thing. But tell us a little bit about your feeling of, of, of joy and happiness in the community of <laughs> scholars dominated by people on the left who have a kind of conventional perception of everything. Yeah. And you challenge them. What's that like for Scott Winship? You know, it's, I think there are happy warriors out there, which is, which is a, a phrase I've never understood. I, I would describe myself as an unhappy warrior because I don't, I don't like to scrap. I think that's a misperception people have of me that I enjoy yeah. waking up in the morning and figuring out which, which fight on Twitter I'm going to get into today. But, you know, we all feel very passionate about these things. I, have had a weird journey in that I started, you know, from a, from a very lefty place, you know, in my early 20s as a community organizer for ACORN, eventually kind of settled very comfortably, you know, into feeling I was a, a Bill Clinton new Democrat, I think, in the in the 90s and early 2000s. And, and gradually over time, you know, I think my conservative tendencies have tended to play a bigger role in how I think about the world. And so, you know, I've gotten into a lot of spirited arguments. Suffers. But I think, Scott, I think you're, you're, you're going to ideology too quickly. I think it's just a matter of facts. Yeah, I think no, what I think you right. do more than anybody else is say, hey, wait a minute. Yep. That's not what the data shows. Yeah. And, and you're calling people to account for sloppy uses of data or no uses of data at all. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's what I would like to think as well. And, and, and in some ways, my, my conservative drift has been a reaction to you know, a read of the evidence. I, I was very much against welfare reform when it happened in the mid-1990s. I, I agreed with Democrats who were saying there were going to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of homeless kids on the street as a result of it. And in grad school, I, I started grad school working on research that I fully believed was going to reveal all the harms that welfare reform had done. And instead, our own results, you know, we found the opposite, that, that the kids of single moms had done better over time. And so as a result of kind of having to confront evidence that goes against what you what you originally believed. What conventional media believes or yeah. what the other side believes. Yeah, absolutely. Other sides, but... Yep. I mean, I just think that that's what I see you do more than anybody else, along with Kevin and Bruce and other scholars For at sure. AI. Is, it's just there's so much conventional wisdom in this world yeah. that is false. Yeah, and, absolutely. And you have to push back against it or it will it will become the prevailing view and it will it will win in Congress and win in governor's offices. So, yep. I mean, you even challenged Alan Kruger's Gatsby curve a long time ago, and that was a – a big fight in the Obama yes. administration. That that might have been the the fight that, that you know that uh, got you your reputation. For better for worse, got me the scrapper reputation. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I, again, it was you know I didn't have anything against Alan Kruger or David Card was sort of also working on these things at the time. Or I mean, I voted for President Obama. If you want to be honest, yeah. you, you heard it here first. But what were they saying um, that turned out just not to be true? Well, they were making this argument. They wanted to show that income inequality was bad for economic mobility, and the first way they tried to do that. You know, I, I, I sort of looked at it and I had I had come from the Pew Charitable Trust where I had been a research manager for the Economic Mobility Project. So I knew the literature and I knew that nothing in the literature said that, that, that A, that mobility had fallen or that inequality had caused that fall. And so when they started citing numbers, I was like, I have no idea where those numbers are coming from. And it turned out they had done 
their own original analyses that were pretty badly flawed. They they were they went out in public once. I think I think President Obama made one speech where he used them, and then they disappeared off the map mm-hmm. after I wrote something about it. Mm-hmm. And then they came up with this Great Gatsby curve, which was, you know, showing that across countries, countries with more inequality have less mobility. Turns out the, mo- the mobility measure. I'm making air quotes for the listeners. The mobility measure almost mechanically looked worse when inequality was higher. <laughs> so it was. This relationship they they had found was really baked in, and I had sort of argued that, and a lot of people came to the administration's defense about, uh, over that. God forbid, he yeah. challenged President mm. Obama on inequality. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think within you know years, within a few years, it was pretty clear. I think oh, I yeah. had the better case. You on clearly it. won that won that debate, mm. and you had a, you made an appearance in the New York Times op ed page where that was a kind of an interesting. What was that like? Yeah, very excited. I'd never been published in the Times before. I had, had sort of wanted to make this argument. I saw a lot of the debate about the child tax, you know, just just sort of oversimplifying. Again, I was sort of like a little bit poking both sides in the eye with a stick. You know, I think conservatives haven't acknowledged enough that, well, that, that if you give people money, like poverty goes down. Like that's the mm-hmm. first order effect of giving people money. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's important you don't stop there because as, as I sort of said at the beginning of the show, you have to worry about these incentives and, and what has a second and third order effects. And, and there, I think progressives have just been, you know, completely unreasonable in denying that, that an expanded child tax credit that isn't conditioned on work would cause some people to stop working. I mean, it turns out that's a pretty big number. Bruce and Kevin's paper showed that that was, you know, something like one and a half million parents, most of them single parents, would stop working. And that would that would reduce the poverty impact. Of the cash. Of, of the cash. And it would potentially create these worrisome, you know, mobility results down the road. So I, I was trying to argue that, you know, you can believe both of those things and, and you can feel like there are other ways that we ought to try to reduce poverty that wouldn't necessarily have these adverse um, potential consequences. Now, Scott, I do have to tell you that, 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 that see, see, he used that, that characterization that he was poking both sides in the eye with a stick. <laughs> That's the problem, Scott. You're, yeah, you, you're challenging their priors. You're questioning their results. But when you call, say you're poking them in the eye with a stick, that's what everyone says. No, Scott, don't do that. Fair enough. That's yeah. There's the, the scrapper. I'll, I should put my stick down. And certainly don't point it at the eye. That's the really the image I don't want to see. Maybe I could just whack people with the that's stick. That's right. I'm, keep I'm, it away I'm from the eye. There we go. I'm, I'm giving them a little slap on the wrist. Is even I that's mean, a little better. Fair enough. I'm, I'm curious to know. I mean, the child tax credit is something that there's been disagreement about at AEI among scholars here. Yep. And I do think it's it's just really interesting to me just not being the former director of the poverty department <laughs> here, but just reading reports on poverty numbers. I just think there's no shared sense of reality or set of facts in that space, which is not true in a lot of other areas where there's substantive like policy disagreements. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of an Im- impenetrable area for people that don't know it very well. So I'm just curious, between the two of you, do you have differences on what you think of the child tax credit. Is there a version of it that you would accept? I kind of feel like you guys have slightly different takes on it. Boy, jumping right in there. You go first, I think the listeners want to know. Robert and I both have glasses on, so there'll be no eye-poking. I know, keep the sticks down. No, I mean, I think... I think broadly we're basically on the same page. I think how 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 would I guess that we that we differ? I might be open to some policy tweaks that that I Robert think you're would more like. Open to- there was an interesting policy proposal by the bipartisan policy center where they would have they would have taken the child tax credit and they would have retained the phase in, you know, which which incentivizes work, means as you work more, 
you get a bigger child tax credit, but they would have also given non-workers something. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't have been the full amount. There would have still been a clear work incentive, but it would have given them, say, $1,000 rather than nothing. You know, the details matter a lot on these things. <laughs> I would potentially be open maybe to something like that. Maybe. Robert could probably talk me out of it before we left the room. <laughs> no, right. no. What else? I, I think know. you're a little more comfortable with the federalization of these programs yeah. than I am. But I come. that's my experience coming from the states and yep. localities. I don't think you're as enamored with the, the efforts of local organizations, caseworkers, in helping people get into jobs. Yep. I probably overstate my affection for that than for, that you're entirely comfortable with. I, I think that there. I am a little bit more of an absolutist. Mm-hmm. I just think if you give individuals money from Washington who have no connection to work, you're going to discourage work, and that's something you don't want to do unless the person is – disabled or, you know, a senior citizen over 65. And, and and if you're an adult working age person, we want you in the labor force. It's good for you and good for your families. And I'm a little strong on that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is I, some of my position is related to not just the mechanical effect of the dollars, yep. but the messaging that comes from Washington when, when you're sending checks to people without any attention to their behavior. Yes. And people that are more economists and more into big, you know, data sets don't think about that from a standpoint of yeah. the individual the way I do. So, yeah, I'm much I'm there, and but I think among the divisions at AEI, the division between me and Scott is not the one to no, work. No, you're about. the two that are <laughs> that's right, here. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> There's no. a, there, and as you know, there are people at AI that are really in and more than anything else. And, and I want to bring this up because it is an important issue. And that is the job decline in in, in birth rates. And there's yeah. a concern that it's harder and harder. People are less and less willing to form families and raise children. And if they had a little more economic support from the government, that would encourage more births and more family formation. Mm-hmm. Scott used to have a proposal. I don't know if he still is shopping around Washington where he would only give certain benefits to married families mm-hmm. with children. Mm-hmm. I sort of like that. Yep. And that's it's more much much more likely that married children with families are going to have at least one worker in it, and therefore, the benefit doesn't upset me as much. But you know, single parent households are a huge proportion of the number of households where children are, and and for those households, work really is important for that custodial parent because it sets an example, it derives income, and there's all it establishes a certain discipline. Yep. So yeah, well, there the divide is those, those people that. <laughs> want people in your generation to get married and have four kids. Uh, mm. And I do too. I, <laughs> it's like you mean, that's you. But, uh, Maybe I'm not putting any pressure Thank on you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just want all our listeners to know that I'm still celebrating the news in my family that my second son and his wife are going to have their first child to be my first, and Sarah's first grandchild. So I'm that's very excited exciting. about that. And it's great news. They held it in secret for a long time. And they mm. did it without an expanded child tax and credit. And they did it without an expanded <laughs> child tax credit. That's right. So, Amazing. yeah, I don't think that, yeah. So that's what, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's and great. also, uh, well, I was going to say something else about the difference between Scott's and my experience in the debate. And this may be unfair to say, <laughs> but, but Scott has been the victim of such mean-spirited attacks uh, that sometimes I think he tries to give them a little something so they realize he's not so bad. I don't have any interest in that at all. 
<laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Maybe no, that's wrong. But. The, I mean, the point about the importance of social workers, I think is a really important one that you've, you've brought me around on because I haven't had the experience that you've had of kind of being there on, on the ground. And, you know, I think a lot of the movement mostly on the left, but also to some extent, you know, places that are kind of more in the center, I think even to Scannon, you know, there's, there's this instinct that like, we just should give people cash. That's the answer to everything. They know best how to spend it. And, and Robert makes, you know, some really important points, you know, that there are a lot of families, many who, you know, abs like, like everybody want the best for their kids, but are struggling with profound issues, whether that's mental health issues or substance abuse, domestic violence, and and social workers, you know, give them a touch point uh, into the system where the things that cash doesn't uh, doesn't solve, you know, there's there's opportunities to help them out in that regard. So he was really the only one making that argument, I think, during during yeah, 2021. Nobody likes social workers. No, uh, just nobody. you. Just me. <laughs> and I could be wrong. Last thing, Scott. So we, we the child tax credit is is no longer. It's back to where it was. Yep. And I think there's still issues. But looking forward, what is the one thing that you think either at the federal level or somewhere in the states you'd like to see happen to help people have greater? Interesting. The one thing for greater upward mobility. You know, I had proposed something. This is probably more like a something that could happen 10 years out rather than in the next Congress. I, I would love to see a real prioritization of the goal of increasing school readiness for lower income kids. You know, you get these big gaps in adulthood, but those, they're very large gaps when kids start school, just in terms of their test scores, their sort of behavioral problems, things like that. Now, the problem is we don't really know how to do that. Head Start, you know, is not going to be the solution from from what the evidence says. Universal pre-K is probably not going to be the solution. So we need to create an office of opportunity, I, I would say, to fund a bunch of local programs that would be rigorously evaluated. We would go sort of where the evidence tells us. I think most of the time the evidence is going to tell us like that didn't work, which is disappointing, but we should be looking for a few things that that do work. I kind of go back to 1948, I think. The Joint Economic Committee was created where Kevin just came from and where I where I previously worked. Uh, and the Council of Economic Advisors was created at the same time. So one, one in the uh, executive, one in the legislative branch to prioritize issues around economic growth. If we could do something similar and say, hey, we want to, this is such an important goal for us to prioritize upward mobility out of poverty, that we have these institutions in both branches, and then we can fight about details and all of that later on. I, I think that would be a really important thing to do. In the next Congress, you know, I think, I think getting SNAP right around the farm bill is going to be really important. And there, I think we need... We do need to work on work incentives. Yeah, so he's talking about the food stamp program, or it's now called SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The Farm Bill is up for reauthorization. There will be a run at trying to bring a little greater focus on work in that program so that individuals who come in and get food assistance through the SNAP program are also encouraged to get a job when they're not working. A lot of them are working. Yep. And when they're working, SNAP works in kind of a nice way. It supplements wages. But when they're not working, you know, to have a program that says, here's your card and see you in a year – and then you go buy your groceries and I'm not going to worry about your underlying conditions seems to me to be a lost opportunity For sure. mm -hmm. and we'll see what happens there on the, yeah, I like the earlier, that's just a, you're right. But you know, there are a lot of things going on in the country at the mm -hmm. local level and yep. that are foundation funded, philanthropy funded that are really focused on that. And, yep. and whether we have a presidential appointee and a person in Congress who's totally responsible for that, still hasn't prevented it from happening. Yep. But you're absolutely right. It turns out it's hard yeah. to intervene in households um, that have bad, that, that are, 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 have trouble having their children be ready for school mm -hmm. and to make them so that they are ready. But I think you're right. There are ways that you could do it. Yep. And we just need to define them. 
And one of the things I think I hope the center can do is is spotlight these these local efforts that are happening so that they can be replicated in the private sector and we can just develop a better uh, yeah foundation for understanding what what's working, what's not working. Mm-hmm. Well, there's been a lively conversation. Phoebe, do you have anything more? No, we're excited to keep watching the center. Yeah, we'll see. And we'll have you back and you give us your all your results of the things you've accomplished. <laughs> once, once we've cured yeah. upward mobility. And, yes, and, exactly. And, and thanks very much, listeners. We'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs at AEI and host of the Campus Exchange Podcast. I want to take a moment to tell you about AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program, taking place in Washington, D.C. this June. This annual program is an all-expenses-paid experience for undergraduate students to come to D.C. from universities across the nation and world for a week in June to learn from top policy experts. Some of the courses we're offering this year will cover the changing nature of warfare, taught by AEI's Corey Shockey, Polarization and Pluralism with David French of the New York Times, and the Foundations of Democratic Capitalism with AEI's Michael Strain. In addition to their seminars, students will also have the opportunity to connect and network with other students, young professionals, and experts from across the political spectrum and public policy world. If you are a current college student or you know someone who is, who may be interested, head over to AEI.org or Google AEI Summer Honors to learn more. Applications are due March 1st, 2023. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.